6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching in the book of Song of Songs, entitled, The Allegorical Views. As always, we want to start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your word, and we specifically thank you for this book. And we pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and lives to what you have here for us. As we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our shepherd king indeed. Amen. Okay, we are in session four of our exploration of the Song of Songs. And in the previous sessions, of course, we went through verse by verse, looking at it from a literal point of view, which we feel is the dominant primary principal point of view. But there are others that are also fruitful. And that's what we're going to explore in this session, the allegorical alternatives here. And uh, here's a strange book, only 117 verses, 470 Hebrew words, 10% of which, 47 of which, appear only in this book. And yet, it is the least studied and certainly the most controversial of all the books in the Bible. And uh, this book, clearly, we must remember, is inspired. It was part of the scriptures that Jesus Christ uh, endorsed when he was here on the earth. He put his imprimatur imp- on it, um, on the entire volume, when he says, the scripture cannot be broken. He said that in John 10. So this is a strange book, controversial book, but one that's in the canon, one that Jesus himself endorsed. So it incidentally was the favorite book of D.L. Moody and uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and, of course, St. John of the Cross and some others. Let's get this in front of us as we go here. All Scripture, we know, is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, Paul tells us in his second letter to his protege, Timothy. All Scripture, this included, given by the inspiration of God, and the Greek term there is actually the term for being God-breathed. We need to remember that. That's what makes our Bible so distinct so powerful, so precious. But then it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, righteousness. What does that mean? What for doctrine? That tells us what's right. For reproof, what's not right. For correction, how to get it right. And for instruction, how to stay right. So it's this is a powerful anchor point for us to keep in mind whenever we enter the Bible, especially those areas that may seem confusing or controversial. This is our guide right here. So as you may recall, it was divided in, the book was divided in two major parts. The first was courtship and marriage, and that was consisted of three idols, or love poems, to music actually, and that included seven different reflections, you may recall. The last half of the book deals with after marriage, the sexual adjustments, and it had two idols with the, all the rest of the, uh, the other six uh, uh, reflections. And the climax of the book, of course, is right in the middle, which 
uh, underscores the fact that every detail here is designed for us. That certainly applies literally, but it may apply even more so as we start looking at the overall patterns that we observe here. Before we go on, let's just review briefly the lessons, the main lessons we learned from the, our literal review of the book. God's high view of marriage pervades all the way through. God has a high, in fact, he uses marriage as his mechanism of communicating what he means by intimacy. It's clear that God has the highest possible view of sexuality. He regards it having the deepest aspects of our personhood. And he guards that because he wants it observed in the marriage and nowhere else. And so only in the marriage context is this, is this uh, emphasis uh, there. It, even within the marriage, it can be profaned by either of two extremes, asceticism on the one hand or extreme uh, lust on the other. And so between those two boundaries, anything that's mutually acceptable to the partners apparently is, is uh, uh, effectual here. The second major lesson is the, how the bridegroom views his bride. Many of the commentators feel this may be the most important message in the entire book. He, his similes all the way through always eclipse hers. And that's interesting. He always has the dominant overriding perception, even though they both are adoring each other through the passages, he is always uh, ecl eclipsing hers. And uh, he invariably views the bride without defect. And that's emphasized again and again and again. And that has some lessons for us. In fact, many feel this may be the most important lesson of the entire book. Another thing that pervades the entire 117 verses is the importance of communication within the marriage. From end to end, there's an underscoring of affirming the, the, the mate. Continual verbal affirmations are called for. And that's where so many of us, as we examine ourselves, fall short. Do we every day find a creative way to affirm our affection, our love, our commitment to our bride and vice versa? Continual verbal affirmations seem to be underscoring every passage. In other words, the wife is to be the cheerleader of the husband, the champion, the companion, and of course the complement, one for the other. And uh, so the, that's uh, another. Another thing that comes up that especially in the last half of the book is dealing with what they call foxes. The idiom in that culture, the fox was the adversary of someone with a vineyard or with agriculture because they burrowed and they, they destroyed agriculture. They were, they were considered problems, if you will. So dealing with foxes. Now, we went through four major ones, as a matter of fact. The fox of uncontrolled desire, which drives a wedge of guilt between people, between a couple, is an example. There's the fox of, of mistrust and jealousy, which breaks down the bond of love. Or it can be the fox of selfishness and pride, which refuses to acknowledge uh, a, a one, one's fault to another. And another one is the unforgiving spirit. What Paul calls, or the, the writer of Hebrews calls the root of bitterness, that uh, where one won't accept another apology. It's interesting that those hurts that are most justified are the most dangerous because they're the 
hardest to let go of, and you stay in bondage to them. So these foxes have been ruining, ruining vineyards for uh, years, according to uh, Glickman, who I, I extracted this quote from. But I think it's so eloquent, I took it as it stood. Okay, we have those, and then we have this fact that we're one flesh now. After marriage, one flesh. Each now owns the other. You are viewed as one in the flesh. And anything permitted uh, is permitted, which is mutually acceptable. People ask questions, what if, what if, what if? Hey, if it's in the marriage and mutually acceptable, it appears to be encouraged. Now, we're going to talk more about this from a New Testament confirmation point of view in our final session next time. We'll go into uh, Ephesians 5, especially 1 Corinthians 7, that deals with this from an, in a New Testament point of view. And so we'll go on there. So the literal view, this book is clearly intended to be, uh, to improve dying or empty or boring marriages, to increase your love for your spouse and to illuminate the true sexual and romantic understanding. So let's underscore that. Let's realize that's primary. We're going to leave that as we get into some other topics here, but I want to make sure that we understand the literal view is, is pretty unassailable. It's, it's very emotional to many people, but it's, it's clearly there and clearly descriptive and clearly effectual in facilitating marriages. But there's even more to the book than what we've in investigated in a literal point of view, and that's what we're going to go into now. Allegorical views. See, another common view among both Jewish and Christian commentators are allegorical views, that these things symbolize something much broader. The Jewish tradition, you find this in the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Targum, viewed the book as an allegorical picture of the love of God for the nation Israel. And uh, Israel, indeed, is even portrayed as the wife of yod uh, in Hosea, Ezekiel, and in many other passages. That, that's the overtone there. But a second view among Christian uh, authors is that this book expresses, uh, it is a type of Christ's love for the church. Uh, Ironside, Hudson Taylor, many of them really restrict their focus on the book in this term as an allegorical perspective of the church as the bride. And uh, all scripture, of course, speaks, all scripture speaks in some way of the glory and beauty of the Messiah. So this is, this is a very comfortable position to defend. Remember, Jesus himself said, I, uh, the volume of the book is written of me. He says that in Psalm 40, verse 7. And also in Luke 24, verse 44, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. He's saying the same thing there, in effect, that everything that was written in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets and the Psalms, were written of Jesus Christ. That's why it's interesting. When you encounter a passage you don't understand, it seems confusing. One of the ways to unravel those conundrums is to put Christ right in the middle of it and see what happens. And you watch him unravel, and you make discoveries how they relate. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible that's accidental. Everything's there deliberately by design. And what's fascinating, once you discover that design, you'll discover it always points in some way to the Messiah. The picture of him, he's what it's all about. That's what he says in several places. So allegorical implications is what we're after. Now, the church leaders like Hippolytus, Origen, Jerome, Anastasius, Augustine, Bernard of Clairvaux, and they viewed the book as an allegory of Christ's love for his bride, the church. So that's, that's, those are the two classic views the Jewish view, the Christian view. There's a third view I want to keep in front of us, and that's a, what I'm going to consider a little separate. 
And that's the courtship between Christ and the individual believer. That's a little different nuance to the second one. That's, I'm going to treat it as a third one. I want us to consider that one. And that may turn out, as we final, finally stand back from all this, probably the most important one for each of us practically. Practically, literally, in terms of our marriage. Practically, personally, in our relationship with Christ. Personally. And so the figure of the bride and the bridegroom is, of course, a frequent symbol all through the Scripture. And you can spend, you spend your time going through each one of those, if you so choose, to get a perspective of that. But here's the assertion that no one has ever entered into the truth of communion with Christ until he himself has become the all-absorbing passion of the soul. So the whole issue here is one of intimacy, not just some kind, not just becoming saved by some kind of acceptance of uh, his paying your penalty. No, 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 much more than that. An all-absorbing passion of the soul. That's really what we're talking about in the marriage. And that's really what we're talking about here, what God would have you. That's the relationship he seeks with you. And so John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets, he recognized Christ as the bridegroom. That part is unassailable. It's very clear in John chapter 3 and elsewhere. Christ himself so claimed it in Matthew 9 verse 15. And Paul even goes further, especially in Ephesians 5, and we're going to look at that next time in detail. So, now, and of course, John in the, in the Revelation and Patmos, chapter 18, 21, and 22, he deals with these idioms as refer, referring to Christ, of course. So, remember the letter that Jesus wrote to the church uh, at Laodicea? It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. Famous call. But realize who that was being directed to. The church at Laodicea, where Christ is outside knocking to get in. And uh, so one of the questions we want to ask ourselves continually, have we adequately responded to him? Or are we guilty of the sin of lethargy, among others? Well, this is just by way of introduction to this session. What I'd like to do now is shift a little bit and discuss the use of rhetorical devices. See, even though we take the Bible literally, that does not bar the use of figures of speech. And uh, we need to understand that there are, in language, things that are called rhetorical devices or figures of speech. We want to explore a few of those to get a flavor of them. How do we know these are legitimate? From Hosea 12.10, for an example, where God says, I've also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. The word similitude, okay, and that's using embracingly of metaphors, allegories, analogies, types, those are just a few. In fact, there are four, uh, there's five things, from similitudes, metaphors, allegories, analogies, and types, those are five. How many different types of rhetorical devices are in the Bible? It may shock you to discover there's over 200. Different kinds, different types. And each of these have been cataloged with examples of each one throughout the Bible in some of our materials. And so we've encountered in our literal view the use of gazelle, roe heart, animals to reflect not the animals, but behavior like the animals. So those are similes in effect. We talked about horses, very unusual compliments that were given to, the, to Shulamite by, the, by Solomon. That may sound strange to us, but if you understand that culture, they were high praise indeed. 
and he uses horses, goats, sheep, and so forth, which we won't understand unless we really understand how those idioms fit into their culture. And we went through that. We also talk about the dove and the turtle doves as a symbol of peace. We even use that today. In Calvary Chapel, we use the dove as, as a symbol of that, of that movement and so forth. And uh, we, we talked about foxes. Foxes not as a four-legged animal, but as a source of problems. Used it idiomatically in a sense. Spices, and for all the way through here, we have a plethora of spices and scents to be more than just spices and scents, but to explain, to express exultation and, and uh, the exuberance of the moment. And uh, so those are used quite frequently. We also encounter this term types. In engineering, we speak of prototypes and so forth. Well, in the Bible, we have a thing called types. Give you an example of that is 1 Corinthians 10, 6. He said, now these things were our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The word examples there in the Greek is tupos, from which we get this term type, a mark or a stroke. It's a, in a technical sense, it's a pattern in conformity with something that must be made or something that's coming. In the Bible, a type is typically an idiom of, uh, to represent something that's yet coming. Uh, in, in a person, a prefiguring figure of some kind. So the word type is very frequent in Bible studies. I'll give you a classic example of it, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 4. Paul says, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now he's making an allusion to the wanderings in the wilderness where twice they struck the rock and got water from it and so forth. The rock in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 is the rock that was at Rephidim in Exodus 17, where, where Moses struck the rock and they got the water that they needed. Later on at Meribah, it happens again, and Moses was not supposed to strike the rock. He was supposed to speak to the rock, and he didn't. He didn't do what God wanted him to do. He struck it again, and because of that, he forfeited his inheritance. He was not allowed to enter the promised land. So we need to understand the rock there was not only a type, it's a type that God clearly intended to be a type of his first and second coming of Christ. And, uh, and there's a whole study behind that. The brazen serpent, Numbers 21, is an example of an, a type, a type of Christ, which you can read the whole Old Testament and not understand why until you get to John 3 where Jesus explains that as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be raised up and so on. The classical type is the Akidah, the offer, Abram's offering of Isaac in Genesis 22. And a whole, you can spend a whole study time exploring the treasures that are tucked away in Genesis 22. And we'll look at one of those next time in another way. But Jonah and the fish. We all know the story of Jonah. But Jesus himself points out it was a type, just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus himself ties that shows that that was a type of what's coming. Joseph is a type of Christ. Uh, Arthur B. Pink actually lists a hundred details of how Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50 is an anticipation of aspects of the coming Messiah. And uh, the one that we really encounter here in Song of Songs, it's pretty obvious, but I needed to put it in the list, of course, is the ancient Jewish marriage, which is portrayed in the song, but also has allegorical implications, both in terms of our behavior, but also in terms of our eschatology. The Jewish marriage, there's five ancient steps in the, Jew, uh, the Jewish marriage. The betrothal, 
when the arrangement for the marriage was first contracted, the wedding profession accomplished when the groom went to the house of the bride to fetch her, or else send a wedding party for that effect, as it was shown in the song. And then there's the wedding ceremony itself, where the two are recognized husband and wife in a legal sense. And then there's the wedding feast or banquet, which follows the wedding ceremony, and the wedding night, where the married couple become one uh, through the first sexual union. Those are the well-defined steps in the Jewish marriage. And we saw in the Song of Songs, of course, the wedding procession in the third idol, the sixth reflection, where Solomon sent the wedding party to fetch her and so forth. And then the wedding night, which was in the next reflection, the seventh reflection in the same idol, which included the consummation, the centerpiece of the song, literally centerpiece, 111 lines before it, 111 lines behind it. And interestingly enough, all through another lesson we get out of it, the man always initiates and the woman responds. We see that leadership role, that initiating role, clearly portrayed in the first chapter, but also in the fourth chapter at the consummation, all the way through. Now, there, of course, in addition to our personal parallels here, it's not hard to visualize the eschatological, end-time kind of parallels here. In the betrothal, of course, we have the commitment and the separation as a time of preparation while, while the bridegroom is preparing the place for them to go, uh, she is preparing herself. Then there's the gathering of the bride, what we call the harpazo, if you will, the, the snatching up. And uh, then the wedding itself in the father's house, as distinct from the wedding feast, which is in the kingdom. And so all that is laid out, in effect, at the song in a broader, broad stroke sense. Well, so much for the rhetorical device discussion. Before we go on, I think it'll be useful to get a little tutorial background on hermeneutics from a Hebrew point of view. Hermeneutics, the study of the, uh, uh, the theories of interpretation. Most of us are familiar with various hermeneutics. We take a very high hermeneutic. We take the Bible very literally. But the Hebrew perspective from hermeneutics is a little different than the Gentiles. And uh, all through Hebrew literature, we are uh, confronted with the parallelism of ideas. Sometimes they're synonymous, sometimes they're antithetical, sometimes they're synthetical. I'll show you what I mean. Uh, synonymous parallelism, that's when a second clause re restates what was given in the first clause. Example in Proverbs 19. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. There's parallelism which are reinforcing. Same thing. There's antithetical parallelism. A truth which is stated in the first clause is made stronger in the second clause by contrast with its opposite, if you will. The light of the righteous rejoiceth, but the lamp of the wicked shall be put out. Proverbs 13. Now I'm emphasizing these because we're, we've spent our time the last several sessions reading Solomon's opera. We need to understand Solomon's literary heritage here because we're going to learn some surprising things by examining some of his remarks in another of his collections, namely the book of Proverbs. We have this third synthetic parallelism. That's where the second clause develops the thought of the first. The terror of the king is as a roaring of a lion. He that provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own life. That explains that the first states a fact and the second states the, re the implications of that. So that's another form of Hebrew parallelism. But the parallelism is a typical Hebrew way of containing a thought. There's something else we should be conscious of as we start studying, our, uh, studying the Bible. Most of us, being Gentiles, have a Gentile 
model or Western model of prophecy. We visualize prophecy as a prediction and its fulfillment. And that's, we have lists of those. There's 300 of those apparently of his first coming and so on. The Hebrew mind works a little differently. That prediction then the fulfillment is a Western model. The Hebrew model is a little different. Hebrew model prophecy is a pattern. The idea of types is all through Hebrew literature. In fact, so much so that most of the prophecies in the Old Testament are really patterns of the Messiah that are exactly parallel to the patterns of the nation. That's why in Isaiah 53 and places which are clearly all about the Messiah, the Jewish mind regards that as just about the nation. They put those, the two are parallel in some very, very surprising ways. And that's what we speak of typology, if you will study of those types. Now, there's another thing in Hebrew hermeneutics we should be aware of. They have four different levels of meaning. The first level of meaning they call the Peshat. That's the literal or direct meaning. And that's the primary meaning that was in our minds as we went through the first uh, three sessions here, going through the Song of Songs. The Peshat level, the direct level. Okay. A second level, which they call the Remez level, that's the allegorical significance. That's what we're going to explore a little bit in this session. And that's a hint of something deeper. A remez can be very global. It can also be very, very pithy, very narrow, very denotative. But that's a remez, a hint of something deeper. A third level, what they call the dirash, is what we would call the homiletic or practical application. And uh, it can have a literal meaning. It can also have a symbolic meaning. But what really counts for us in our lives is what's the practical application? How do I use that in my walk, for an example? That's what the Hebrew would call the Darash level, or what we might call the homiletical or practical level. Now, in, uh, uh, in Hebrew, they have even a fourth level that we don't normally emphasize in, in uh, our Christian uh, perspectives, and that's what they call the Sod, and uh, that's the mystical or very hidden meaning. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.